0: Okay, um, questions, concerns, thoughts on this morning, or really anything from the Reformation series, the five solas. And I got to, before one moment, before I get going, I, like I said, I'm discombobulated, so I, I, uh, I'm going to be, my brain's moving slowly, so I, I apologize. And I'm just giving myself grounds to punt. Yes. Donna.
1: Seems like I always have a question.
2: You know, it's hard for me to understand why God blinds people's eyes. When it says he blinds their eyes or ears or whatever, I don't understand that.
0: Ah, okay. That is a great question. The, The short answer I'll give you is we spent an entire Sunday morning on this. If you go back on our podcast... <clears throat> on the, uh, I don't know the date, but it's the uh, Sunday that we dealt with. In fact, go to Luke um, chapter 8. Um, yeah, yeah, you can, if you have a, if you, yeah, well, I'll just give you the very, I'll just take the text and give you the, the one-minute answer. I'll try not to go, you know, 20 minutes. I mean, it's me, so good luck, but, um, but it was, <laughs> okay, it's Luke, hold on. I think it's 8. Oh. Um, but yeah, Jesus was praising God for that. And he does this is a couple of times. Father, I praise you. You've hidden this from the wise and revealed this to children. And so, what? Luke 8, 9. Um, this is where this theme first gets introduced. And we spent the entire Sunday on this. I'm almost there. Here we go. Luke 8. Um, one more page. There we go. The disciples, when he tells his first parable, the parable of the sower in Luke, and the disciples are confused, and they come to him in verse 9. His disciples asked him what the parable meant, and he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see. So there is Jesus saying, I'm doing this so that some of you will see, and I'm doing this so that some of you will not see. Um, And hearing they may not understand. And so we spent the entire Sunday morning on that. I think it's called The Sovereign Purpose of Parables. But, but the short version the short version is this. Jesus is referencing Isaiah 6. This is nothing new. Isaiah is commissioned to go and blind the people of Israel. And God tells them, they will not listen to you. And I'm sending you, so that seeing they will not see, hearing they will not hear. And in that context, it's, it's judgment. Jesus is saying, these people deserve, and because of their idolatry, because of their sin, um, my light is going to harden some of them. I think like heat, heat either bakes clay hard, or it melts wax. And so Jesus is doing his ministry in such a way that it has both effects. For People with hard hearts, it crystallizes their hearts, it, it hardens them further. They will cry out, we have no king but Caesar, away with this man, crucify, crucify. They never would have said that if Jesus and his righteousness and his light wasn't in their faces angering them. And for others, they see. So the short answer is um, God is is judicially blinding some people. There's a sense in which you don't want to see long enough. Fine, you can't see. That's the short answer. The longer answer is in the sovereign purpose of parables. Just If you scroll on the podcast back to the text of Luke 8, 10, 9 and through 10, I think, is where you'll see it. That's the short answer. We can go further if people have more questions. But there's that text, and it was a little later, when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, the other passage I alluded to. If you go to chapter 10, I think. I think I remember my way around Luke. It's only been five weeks. Um, Um, No, it's when the 70 come back. Yeah, there it is, okay. So Luke 10, yeah, it's 10. Verse 21, the 70 come back. And look at Jesus, this is actually the text that crystallized, the, our, that we were going to take four weeks to do, go through, um, we also did a series in the spring, four weeks on looking at election and predestination because of this text. Um, we had a lot of questions in the ABF, and I ran it by the elders, and it seemed good, and so we stopped, and hey, so in that same hour, verse 21, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. So what is Jesus rejoicing in? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise. Jesus is praising the Father in part for hiding things, hiding truth. What's that about? Well, that's what we spent four weeks looking at election and predestination to try to deal with. It's not the only thing he's praising him for and revealing them to children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are your eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and many kings desired to see what you see, and they did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. So Jesus here is rejoicing both in God's work in blinding and in God's work of giving sight. And so he spent four weeks dealing with that. But that's, that's the short version. When God blinds, it's not capricious It's not for no reason. It is always a judgment on idolatry and sin. There's a sense in which what we're doing, according to Romans 1, we see God's glory, and we don't like the implications of it. So we're like children who put our fingers over our eyes and our fingers in our ears and say, we can't see you. And eventually, God says, fine, then you can't see me. And for others, he he, um, removes the veil. But it's perfectly just and it's perfectly right of him And There's there's no wrong being done when people who for a long enough period of time want to be blind, okay, be blind. Yes. Oh, yes, three times in Romans, he gave them up, he gave them up, he gave them up. Well, and the language in Isaiah is the connection is that you become what you behold. You worship idols long enough, you become like them. And God repeatedly in Isaiah and in the Psalms Makes it clear the distinction between him is the idols have eyes but do not see and they have ears but do not hear and they have mouths but do not speak, so when God starts saying to the people you will be what He's saying is I'm going to make you I'm going to mold you in the image of the thing you're worshiping, so if you worship the living God we saw this morning you see His glory you get transformed into His image you 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 become conformed to the image of what you're what you're worshiping we resemble what we revere we become what we behold. And the same thing holds true if one worship idols, you will become dumb, lifeless, and deaf. So all of that language of spiritual sensory deprivation, seeing but not seeing, hearing but not hearing, hearts of stone, not hearts of flesh, all of that is all that idolatry language that finds its root in Isaiah six. But that's what we spend fifty minutes on a Sunday morning walking through. But my point is it's not just arbitrary. It's, it's because of the idolatry and because of the willful rejection. And Romans 1 makes that clear. So this is God's response to, fine, you want to pretend I'm not there? You want to willfully ignore me? Now you can't see anymore. That's, and Jesus is praising God for that. That's the challenging thing. Okay, other questions? That was only five minutes, so not 20, so okay. Doing well. Naomi, is it Mike? Right there.
1: I just wondered if you could um, distinguish what um, the difference between how we view shame and how the Catholics view shame. Mm. I know we mentioned that before, like just talking privately, but I was just wondering if you could expound upon that a little bit. Sure. Or expand upon that, sorry.
0: Sure. Shame. Oh, okay. Let me, let me gather my thoughts. Okay. We live in a culture that doesn't know what to do with shame. And I think shame is probably, I'm pleased you picked that category. It's a biblical category. What most people are talking about with self-esteem, I think they're talking about shame. And the reason why it's helpful is because if you open your Bible and look for self-esteem, you're not going to really find many passages. You start speaking about honor and shame, thousands of passages are going to light up. So what our culture says is we should never feel shame. That is not accurate biblically. Biblically, when we've done shamefully, we should feel shame. Open up to 2 Corinthians 7. Shame should work a, uh, <clears throat> let me back out of that sentence. I told you my head's spinning. Uh, there's a godly sorrow and shame, and there's an, and there's an unrighteous god sorrow and shame. And in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul distinguishes between the two. So so I'm thinking in James. He tells the people in James, the wicked, how lament, be ashamed, so that God will exalt you. God exalts the humble and he opposes the proud. So so his counsel to the wicked in James is that they, to some extent, feel shame. They've done shamefully. But that is not the end in itself. It's a pathway to repentance and, and restoration. So in 2 Corinthians 7, I think, is the crucial thing when we're feeling shame or when people we know are feeling shame, um, sorrow is another way of looking at it, what is it producing in us? Um, because yeah, the, the, the spirit, when he first comes, convicting, um a sinner of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and as you become aware of your sin, and if you become aware of God's righteousness and the upcoming judgment, shame is a rational, real response, so when Peter sees the Lord's glory, he says, get away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And Isaiah feels shame when he sees God. I said, woe unto me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, from a people of unclean lips. And God responds by cleansing them. So there's a type of shame that leads to healing and restoration. And there's a type of shame that led Judas to hang himself. And so it's important we distinguish the two. So Paul wrote a kind of stinging letter to the Corinthians. We don't have possession of it. Some have argued that it's 1 Corinthians. It's Possible, I don't think so. But usually it's referred to as Paul's strong letter or his harsh letter. But he talks about it here. Verse 8 of Second Corinthians 7. Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. So he wrote a letter and they, they, they felt some shame. They felt some grief. Although I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. So I think one of the distinctions, getting your question, is biblically Shame is not an end in itself. It's not a place to dwell and live. It's a valley we may need to go through, but it's on its way to a different destination. Um, and yet, so whenever it's simply shame, you should just feel ashamed, full story, stop, we're done. That's, that's not right. So Paul wrote a letter, and a letter made them ashamed. It stung, it pointed out their sin, they felt sorrow. He felt sorry for writing it, but he doesn't regret writing it. And he says, Why? Um, Um, though I see that the letter grieved you though only for a while as it is I rejoice not because you were grieved but because you were grieved into repenting so if shame and grief and sorrow lead to repentance they're wonderful they're the fruit of the spirit so two men betray Jesus on the same night Peter and um, and (laughs) All right, that was exciting. Okay, we only know of two men. Scripture records two men who betrayed Jesus on the same night, Peter and Judas. And both of them weep bitterly, right? And I don't think you could tell from the outside while they're weeping whose sorrow and grief and shame was godly and whose wasn't, we can only tell by what it leads to. In the case of Judas, it leads to death and suicide. And in Peter's, it leads to restoration. He leads the church. He writes two books in the New Testament. So in the moment of shame, I don't know. It's kind of like when you feel convicted of sin and you feel shame. If that shame leads you like a dog to go hide behind the couch, Stay away from Christ, His people, and His Word. I don't think that shame is from God. If the shame and sorrow you feel leads you to the cross, confession, repentance, and restoration, it's wonderful. And that's what we're going to see here. So, Second Corinthians seven, verse ten: For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I say, you can tell them apart by the fruit they bear. Does the shame and sorrow and grief you feel lead to repentance and salvation and life or death? And then he goes on to give seven heart characteristics of the, the, the ingredients of repentance. For see what earnestness this godly grief produced in you. Also, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment at every point you proved yourself innocent in the matter. So one of the points to try to make from this passage is that long-term repentance is demonstratable. Paul is a continent away, he's in Macedonia, and Timothy has, no, it's Titus came to him. Sorry, yeah, verse, verse six, coming of Titus. Titus came to him after delivering the letter with the report of the Corinthian response. And the Corinthian response was so clear over time that Paul, a continent away, can say, it's clear you guys have repented, it's clear you guys have sorrowed in a godly way, and I rejoice that I wrote this harsh letter to you. So even though in the moment you can't tell the difference between a Judas and a Peter, over time you can because one leads to life, one leads to death. So that, that's always the, the challenge for us because Satan is the accuser. So on the one hand, we have to be aware of satanic accusation where he lives night and day before the throne of God, cursing the saints. blaming. It. We saw in Zechariah when Joshua the high priest came forward, Satan the accuser was there. And that is, is unrighteous. And, and I think the way we can tell them apart is what they cause in us. If your sense of shame leaves you to distance yourself from God's word, from the cross, from God's people, that's the accuser talking. If your shame causes you to draw near to the throne of grace for help in time of need, that's probably the Holy Spirit convicting you. So, so to me, that's the entire difference. But for us, guilt, grief, and shame is a means to the wonderful end of repentance and restoration and forgiveness. In the Roman system, it tends to be the um, the, uh, the addiction that needs the drug of the um, the ongoing drug of the sacerdotal system because Rome doesn't offer people a full and complete forgiveness. It offers them a measure of grace. The, probably the best and simple analogy I can give for the Roman system. If you want a more elaborate one, we still have copies of R.C. Sproul in the back. It's fantastic, but picture this coffee cup. If I took a couple nail holes and put them in it, and we drew three lines on the side. There's a line here, this black line, that's hell. If you have less coffee in this cup than below that line, you go to hell. And then we draw another line right near the top. It says heaven, and in between is purgatory. So you're born in an original sin. You're born with an empty coffee cup. But then, you receive infant baptism, your original sin is removed, your coffee cup is now filled with coffee. But you sin throughout the day, and, coffee, and the coffee leaks out, grace leaks out. So how do you get more coffee back in? You've got to go to confession, you've got to go take the Eucharist, you've got to go participate in their sacramental, sacerdotal system. So the, the Roman Catholic is constantly trying to get more grace infused into their life, and they're not sure what state they're going to die in. If they died after committing a mortal sin, they'd go to hell. And so this was, the language of addiction may sound unnecessarily polemic, but how else do you describe entire European countries revolting and and turning on their kings when the Pope shut off um, communion? Because in their mind, I need this ongoing grace or I'm going to hell. So through that constant sense of guilt, they're never alleviating the guilt. They're only giving a temporary respite. In, In fact... Two weeks ago, we talked about Christ's sacrifice. It very much is like the sacrificial system of the Old Testament where you kept on needing to come back and offer new sacrifices. You constantly need to offer new lambs and new sheep. The blood of goats and bulls could only cover for a time, never ultimately remove sin. And that's what Rome is offering in the Eucharist is they constantly pour out a measure of grace, but you're never fully and finally forgiven. So shame becomes a place to live in the Roman system. It, it, you never really get out of it. Um, maybe some few saints do, but that very much is, is a place to live. Now, then the culture rebels against that. Fine, we'll never feel shame again. Well, that's not right either. Paul and the biblical notion is shame leads to confession repentance, which leads to restoration and fullness of joy. So that you read Psalm 51, you can talk about God's hand being heavy upon him, and he wants God to renew. The joy of, of his salvation, but then he does and he you know moves on from there. He doesn't live there. Does that does that help at all, Naomi? That I think that's a bit so we've got to guard against both errors of just constantly dumping shame on people and never releasing, never without any relief, without any, without any escape, or the 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 cultural notion that we never, ever, ever want people to be ashamed. So probably the simplest example I can give is with my children, right? My, I mean, one child does something really mean to the other child. And I, and I rebuke them. I call them and I say, look, you just, you just hated your sister. You just hated your brother. And there's a sense in which my rebuke is meant to bring a sense of shame. right? I mean, they ought to lower their head some. Yeah, why'd you do that? I just, I wanted the toy more than I wanted him. That's wrong, wasn't it? Yeah, that was wrong. Now, if I stay there for the next three hours, and that was really bad, Was wasn't it? that was really bad. How bad was it? It was really bad. <laughs> go write 20 times on a piece of paper. It was really bad. It was really bad. That's unhealthy. <laughs> but if I don't ever rebuke it, I just, oh, we'll just, that's okay. I'm not being a good parent either. What do I want to do? I'm, I'm rebuking them so that they'll confess, so they can go ask their brother or sister to forgive them, so we can be restored, so we can move on in a happy day. That's, a biblical understanding of, of guilt and shame. So we don't want to simply pretend it doesn't exist, which is largely what our culture wants to do. Um, and we also don't want to live there. So that's my...
3: Yes, Mike, in the back. I think, I think this kind of goes along with what you're talking about. But I've got a person in my life that they, they talk about penance. Every time they have to do something that they... Well, oh, it was terrible, but I just consider it my penance for the day for the sins I've done in the past, and mm. that kind of goes along with the shame, because I think you have to feel shame to feel like you have to do, have to give repentance. Or, and this is a Catholic, this, mm. is, this gentleman's in the Catholic, is in the Catholic Church, right?
0: Well, that again gets tricky um, because we know that sin has consequences, right? So somebody may have picked up an STD because of sin in their life, and the Lord has sovereignly determined there will be lifelong consequences for that, that dalliance, that sin, that other people, there aren't. God can determine to let there be physical consequences for sin. I, I, you know, A person could get drunk and lose their license, and they've forgiven, they've been repented, they've been restored. Um, in fact, I just posted something on online, Al Mohler, talking about the recent senatorial race where um, assuming... Let's assume for a moment um, this person's guilty of what they've been accused of. Some Christians are being interviewed saying, well, we should just forgive them. Well, sure, but that by no means negates if they're repentant. The laws claim there are people who need to go to prison who we forgive. You, know, you commit a murder, you can be forgiven. You, you, you need to go to jail too, though. You know, so there can be consequences. It's not penance, though. So there's a sense in which I I can view things in my life as God's discipline, consequences for sin in my life that I may have to live with. But it's not penance. I'm not paying anything back. According to, open up to Hebrews 12. When God disciplines, when sin has temporal consequences, and it does, not always, and we need to be very careful about trying to be Job's friends and, oh, that happened because you did something wrong because we also know not all the bad things in life are that. We need to be very, very careful in trying to pick and choose and and, and and guessing what bad events in life are consequences of sin. Some of it's pretty obvious. You know, you get the DUI and you lose your license. Okay. That, that seems pretty pretty clear. Others, not so much. We don't want to be Job's friends or the disciples whose sin was this? Was it this man or his parents? None. But according to Hebrews 12, verse 7, um, oh, pick it up in verse 5. You've forgotten. The exhortation that addresses you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, the irony here is that in today's world, there'd be plenty of people going, me. But in Paul's day, at least, the assumption was, of course... If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. Now, the notion of penance, as I understand it, is satisfaction. Making amends, paying someone back. That is not why God disciplines his children. God is not saying, You owe me, pay me. He's saying, I want to train you. I want to shape you. I want to conform you. I want to sift you. I want to, um, uh, what's the word, put in the refine you in a furnace, right? He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So God's God's fatherly discipline is never pay me back, you owe me. I want my pound of flesh. It is always meant to be um, restorative, it's meant to be transforming, it's meant to produce holiness. So the Catholic understanding of penance, I did this bad thing and now I gotta pay for it. That's broken. That's not what's going on. I've done this bad thing. The Lord's disciplining me to make me holy. He's teaching me something. He's, he's, he's refining me. That's, that's entirely possible. There's some things in my life that I've seen, I, I think that's God teaching me something. Um, but it's always to train and make me more Christ-like if and when it's happening. So that'd be the biggest difference, is penance, I think, is primarily re- repayment, making of satisfaction. That's completely absent. If and when God does discipline his children, and we need to be careful guessing when he's doing that. Um, but if and when he does, it's to make them more holy and to benefit us for our good. There's no sense of repayment and debt and owing. It's, it's, it, does that make sense, Mike? That, that'd be the biggest difference. I talked to him, I was like, you're not paying God back. He might be training you. He might be... It's, it's getting back to debt and pay and owe and... and oh, I sinned, so now I got to owe God, so I got to go through three weeks of hell with this whatever to pay him back because uh, you know, I owed him and now we're square again. Yeah, that's broken, that is completely broken.
1: Greg. I was in Mexico uh, 35 years ago something like that and, and the Pope was coming the week we were, just happened to be driving Third through. Year. And uh, we would encounter people on the road, on their knees, uh, 50 miles from Mexico City, right. going to, you know, crawling on their knees to go see the pope. Right. And we asked our interpreter, what, what was going on? And he said, well, these people think of this as a penance. You know, they're, they're earning by their pain. Uh, it, it's also the exact same thing that people that, that take whips and whip themselves, uh-huh. priests that would do that, and yeah. think that this was gaining things, as if this is pleasing to God yeah. to, to hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. But before I give the microphone up, I'd, I'd like to ask you, um, there may be people in here that are wondering why we're picking on the Catholic Church. When, we haven't been talking about the Mormon Church. We've been talking about the Seventh-day Adventists. A few years ago, I'd be confused about this. I understand it now, but maybe you could sure. enlighten any that might be confused.
0: Happy to. I, I think we just... We... <laughs> and... Uh... Two things. One, our culture confuses disagreement with hate. So if you disagree with something, you hate them. I don't hate Catholics, Catholicism. We we were on the one. The first point would be, um, I'm trying to identify where we disagree. Large for two reasons. One, there is confusion even among evangelicals that people say today, oh, that was a problem 500 years ago. Everything's cool and hokey now. And no, that's not the case. So there's error there where people think um, all these issues have been resolved. They haven't. There's a counter-Reformation council that took place over 30 years called the Council of Trent, and I think two years ago on Reformation Sunday, I did a message on the gospel and the Reformation where I cited some of those conclusions, and I think I counted that you and I were damned 26 ways that the canons of Trent take the form of if anyone says da-da-da-da-da, let them be damned or accursed, anathema, and um, so Rome went out of its way. They understood there was a real difference 500 years ago, and they damned 26 ways to Sunday people who were of Protestant persuasion. The last major ecumenical council the Roman Catholic Church had in the 60s, Vatican II, where they updated the Mass to English from Latin, and they did a lot of progressive moves forward. One of the things they voluntarily chose to do is reaffirm the canons of Trent. So Rome, last time they got together and had a big ecumenical council, one of the things they thought was important to do was to say, we still believe everything we said at Trent. So as recently as the 1960s, there is no union. So that's the first point. There's confusion over, is there disagreement? The second reason, and why not the Mormons or why not the Jehovah Witnesses, is in our culture and in our place in the world, I think Catholicism, more so than JWs and Mormons, are the greatest... Um, counterfeit They're The closest thing that's believable that's wrong. Um, not, not many people are getting tricked by Scientology, so we don't need to do teaching on the errors of Scientology. It's not a great danger, at least in our neck of the woods. We, you might live somewhere in the world where it is, and then it might be appropriate to contrast Scientology and Christianity. If we were living in Utah, I'm we are guessing we would have a lot more to say about Mormonism because Mormonism in Utah is much more um, seductive and, and much greater of its appeal. Where we live... Roman Catholicism, um, and in the world, is probably, I'd say, the majority of people who call themselves Christians are Roman Catholics, if not the majority, really close to the majority worldwide. So Rome represents the single greatest um, threat, or the greatest um, counterfeit to what is real. So we, tr- we don't want to come across in any way as hateful, uh, I, I certainly hope that in the series, I don't think we have come across as, as being mocking or rude or condescending or mean-spirited. But make no mistake, there's a real difference of opinion. They understood that 500 years ago. As recently as the 1960s, Rome reaffirmed, oh yeah, we are on different pages. And so positively, the best way to understand these solas is as is opposite what, is, um, what it's not. So to help us understand, what does it mean that salvation is in Christ alone? Well, it means it's not Christ's atoning work and these other sacrifices. So it also helps, I guess that's a third reason, it clarifies. So um, the three reasons then are the backdrop of what we don't believe gives clarity. It's confusing today. People are confused. Do we disagree? Where do we disagree? And Roman Catholicism represents the single greatest um, counterfeit, the single greatest threat to to genuine Christianity in that that it's mistaken for the real thing most often. Does that make, you want to add to that? That's, those are my brain spinning off the cuff thoughts, but you got more to it, hit it.
1: Just one more thing, Uh, is not Roman Catholicism the remnant of the church? That began, mm. I mean, so Mormonism doesn't claim to go back to Christ, right. uh, the Roman Catholic Church, and Catholicism right. uh, has been the purveyor of, quote, Christianity, right. as opposed to Islam or, right. or other things. And so, of course, we go back to the root right. uh, to say where it went wrong.
0: That's, that's a very good point, Greg, very good point, because Roman Catholicism is a moving target. Um, Catholic just means universal, and Rome just means the universal church centered in Rome. Well, the, the centering in Rome starts in the third century. I'd be fine being a part of the Roman Catholic Church in the third century, for the most part. It's really not until you get to the first millennium. It's starting between 500 and 1,000 when it starts going off the rails. But even in 500 AD, it's still pretty solid. And then it starts shifting and shifting. And by the Middle Ages is when it gets really bad. So even Roman Catholicism, okay, what time in the history of that church because we'd claim, we would claim to be the, the sons and daughters of the apostles in the sense of we're descended from that first generation church in Jerusalem, right? I mean, we are, we are grafted into that faith. They're the church and they're part of our history, right? The church in Jerusalem, the church in Antioch. And so it's our history as well. We don't claim to be this new thing. The reform, one of the points the reformers made is we're not saying anything new, we're just saying stuff that hasn't been said for 500 years. So Luther backed up his view on grace by citing the Council of Orange, which was in 529 A.D., which said exactly what he was saying about grace. So Roman Catholicism agreed with him entirely in 529 A.D. They didn't agree with him in 1500 A.D. So that's, part, that's an excellent point as well, that the, Rome, the Roman Catholic Church today is not a fair representation of the Roman Catholic Church through history and we would be quite comfortable with that church at various points in their history, just not for the last you know, thousand years, give or take. At least I wouldn't be, but excellent. Oh, Donna in the back.
2: Oh, well, has um, Catholicism changed a lot since from the beginning, a lot of their yes. um, ways? Can oh, you kind oh. of explain where they came from and where they're at?
0: Sure, sure. Um, Rome has an interesting system where they... Things are entered into practice. They do the opposite of what I would do. <laughs> Things become practice over time, and then eventually they get together and canonize the practices. So, um, the tradition of the pope being um, the pope being um, inerrant when he speaks in his bulls was held for hundreds of years before it was finally canonized at the Council of Trent. So it's not till you get to um, the Council of Trent that the official seal of Roman Catholic doctrine is the, the, the supremacy of the pontiff of Rome. In traditional practice, that had been going on for hundreds of years. So what happens is things get introduced at a degree at a time. The first place I can show you where it gets introduced is, um, this guys back into shame and penance, is um, when Christianity became legal, the first great dilemma facing the church and possible division and schism was what to do with those Christians who under persecution had recanted, denied Christ, given up the sacred books, reported where other Christians were, had had co-opted to the state and offered sacrifices to Caesar. And after Constantine became emperor, there were hundreds and thousands of people who had done that who now said, we repent, we were wrong, please welcome us back in. To which the church that had not done that was very suspicious how convenient now that the winds changed you want back in and you can imagine how difficult it would be if you lost your husband you lost your son or daughter because they stood firm they were burned at the stake but they would not renounce christ and here come the joneses who the second they caught any sign of anything they're like oh here's our bibles we hail caesar you know, and now they want back in well what do we do and then the thought was there was a bunch of christians saying i will not worship next to the joneses there's no way Christ said if you deny him he'll deny them and the thought was they have no way of proving that they're sincere because there won't be another, the only way, this is the logic the only way the Joneses could prove their sincerity would be if another persecution arises and then they hold fast then they would prove they're repentant then we could accept them back but there's no prospects of persecution coming because Christianity is now the law of the land so what do you do? and their concern was that there'd be two churches so they came up with penance those Christians who had denied Christ would on a case-by-case basis be given works of satisfaction to do, whether it would be saying long prayers, whether it would be you know, doing a pilgrimage on their knees, whether it would even be flagellation, they would demonstrate their contrition, and they would do works of satisfaction, and once they had done those, they would be welcomed back in. So the thought was, the, the answer the church came up with in the fourth century was, we will let them back in when they show us that they're sorry to our satisfaction. Now, we had just ended in Luke with Jesus saying, for brother says to you seven times in a day, I repent, forgive him. And, and I'm very sympathetic with how penance arose. It's the wrong answer, but I get it. I get how hard that would be. I get how much faith it would take for me to worship next to somebody when all I have is their word that they're sorry. See, sometimes there are works that need to be done. If you stole $100 and you say, I repent, a very legitimate question is, are you willing to pay the person back you robbed? that's a fair question and if the answer is well no well you're not repentant but there are other sins that what do you how do you show you're repentant of of denying Christ well ne- I won't deny him again well no one's asking you to because it's legal so how do you show your repentance it's 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 going to take a lot of time for that to come out clearly so penance arose in, in results of that and over time other things get added in as well and so it's, it's really a piece by piece by piece movement so once once the church and the state got joined, what's the political head of, of, the, of Constantine's empire? Rome, right? So once church and state get unified, the political concentration of power is in Rome. Surprise, surprise, guess where the religious concentration of power gets found? Rome. And so now you've got this movement of the bishop in Rome being the first among equals, which by the time of the 5th century, you actually have him start being called the Pope. I'm just tracking a couple threads of the development, but it's all a slow development. It's, none of it is sudden. None of it is some, some heretics show up and let's, let's steer the car off the road into the cliff. It's a slow, steady, completely understandable progression, but you give it enough time and it ends up into this very different looking thing. Um, so one last example um, on this point of how the, the ritualism comes in so the other question that they came up with um, that the Donatists movement was in result to is uh, what do you do with people who'd been baptized or ordained by people who later denied the faith and, and, and abandoned the faith so what do you do if you were baptized with the bishop who baptized you under persecution denied Christ and he never came back He's off in a pagan temple worshiping Artemis or something. Is your baptism valid if the person who baptized you proves to be an unbeliever? If, you were, if they laid hands on you to make you a bishop, but the person who laid hands on you proves to be an unbeliever, are you still a bishop? That, those are the questions they're dealing with as they're trying to resolve the church now. And so um, the Donatists said, no. If the person who baptized you, the person who laid hands on you, proves to be unfaithful, it doesn't count. That's the Donatist movement. Augustine's answer... Which I disagree with, Augustine got a lot of things right, but this is when I disagree with him is as long as the rite was performed correctly, it counts. So, so that's where you get Rome's ex operatus operatus, through the working of the work. As long as you're Trinita- were you baptized in a Trinitarian formula, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yes, it counts. Was your consecration as a bishop or as a priest done properly? It counts. And I think the third answer, which I think would be the right one, is was your heart genuine when you were baptized? If, if, did that symbol accurately depict a reality with you in Christ? If it did, it counts. So that's why in this church, I'd encourage people who were baptized before they are believers, and sometimes they get baptized at a camp or something, and then they come to faith later in life. I'd encourage them to get rebaptized. When you had that symbol or sign given to you, it didn't accurately picture the reality. You know what I mean? It'd be like, it's, like, it's like someone walking around with a wedding ring on, but they're not married. Then later in life, they do get married. I think it'd probably be a good idea to put a new ring on. You know, that'd be my thought, but that's, that's, that's just me. So, but you take that answer of Augustine, of the working of the work, and what that ends up as, since it doesn't matter, the validity of the right is not found in the qualifications or the sincerity of the person doing it, that if you let it go to its logical conclusion, and they did, gets people in the 14th century who, John Wycliffe, the, the priests were completely ignorant. And Rome was fine with it. They didn't know what they were saying in Latin. Didn't matter. As long as they said it right, it worked, which I think we mentioned this last week is where hocus pocus comes from. Horus S. Corpus, this is my body, is the part of the Mass when the bread becomes the body of Christ. Horus S. Corpus, this is my body in Latin. And priests who had no idea what they were saying understood that, hey, when I say hocus-pocus, it becomes the body of Christ. And Rome's theology, absolutely. As long as you said it properly, it doesn't matter what you believe, what you think, who you are. You did it right, right? But that little error crept in in the 5th century, and we see what that tree full-grown looks like. It's the full-grown sacramental system where people who are unrighteous and ungodly who don't love God, as long as they do it right, it works and you get machinery that pumps out grace. You turn the crank, and out comes the grace. You, you participate properly in the sacramental system, rightly administered, and it doesn't matter what's going on in your heart, and it doesn't matter what's going on in the heart of the person who does it, as long as it's properly applied, it works. Well, that's that crept in in the 5th century. And you could track other errors as well, but they all creep in slowly, and that's why one of the models of the we're always reforming. We don't think that our doctrinal statement nailed everything right. If someone came in and challenged us, we'd reconsider something. If someone said, hey, you said it this way, but I think it's a bit more biblical this way, we need to always be open to challenge, constantly reforming, because the error can creep in very subtly and, and very, and very um, small at first and eventually bear bad fruit. And so we're, we're, we should always be constantly refining our beliefs and challenging what we hold to Scripture. But once you have a tradition that says our tradition is equal to Scripture, it's really hard to examine your traditions, because you've already granted that there is authoritative as Scripture. Greg, use a microphone?
1: I was just going to say that our perspective on the Catholic Church ought to be that they are exactly what we would be. <laughs> yes. Martinsdale Community Church would yes. be the Catholic Church yes. if we don't understand that's Scripture alone, mm-hmm. because the things they did wasn't. Hey, we'll get them here. It was yeah. this seems right to us, yeah. and they they didn't find it in Scripture, but they still thought, well, this is wisdom. This yeah. seems right to us, right? And and so all this error comes, mm-hmm. I guess you would say, with good intentions, yes, uh, but with po- poorly executed, certainly, but with the wrong perspective. Yeah. You if you if you start deviating away from scripture even Martinsdale community church even would do the us. exact same thing amen
0: amen amen and amen if i'd recommend we got we got one or two books of church history even in the library and i know you think oh man church history that sounds exciting it is fascinating but if you read even a short volume you'll you'll be very sympathetic i am incredibly sympathetic with how these errors crept in but they were given enough time that the, the bad fruit they bore was so clear you know, that, I mean, when you've got completely ignorant priests who bought their priesthood because their father had money, who have no idea what they're saying, chanting things, you go, that's broken, and it's clearly broken. But if you don't notice it, when all of that tracks back to, does your baptism count or not? But that's where it started. That's, that's where the principle entered that eventually, taken to its logical conclusion, entered, ended up with hocus-pocus, Yes.
2: Being raised a Catholic. We didn't have Bibles. I didn't know what a Bible was. We had a Missal on Sunday. We were taught catechism through the Missal. But what was it? And you went to Purgatory for a while. Oh, yeah. You didn't know how long you were going to be there. If you were this good, you'd be there maybe less time than this person, but you were going to go. And... My mom always said that the road to hell is led with with good deeds. Mm. And we have friends that are Catholics that think everything they do, all the good deeds they do, they're going to get there. Mm. But what was amazing is I was then a school nurse at a parochial school, and all of a sudden they started talking about Bible study and Bible groups. And I'm like, wait a minute, you guys don't believe in the Bible? You don't have Bibles? And they do now. And I, it, it amazes me.
0: That was that's a result. No, you're absolutely right. That's a result of Vatican II. At Vatican II, they realized they could no longer um, try to keep people ignorant. The printing press had done its work, um, and so their attempts to keep the Bible out of the hands of the people, they realized they're looking more and more and more ridiculous. So finally, I mean, they, it took till 1960 for them to not say the Mass in Latin. So I realized until 1960. Most Catholic observers had no idea what was being said. but See, it doesn't matter whether they understand what's being said. As long as it's done right, it works. And that's what matters. And so, again, that's just the logical. There's no inconsistency. Ex operatus operatus. Through the working of the work, it's working, baby. It doesn't matter if you understand what's being said. And it wasn't until 1960 that Rome said, okay, you can do it in English. (laughs) I mean, that's a big deal. And so then they, okay, you can have Bibles in English too. Um, but the, they burned at the stake the first peoples who were translating Wycliffe, um, Huss. Um, they they were going to burn Tyndale, but they strangled him first because he had because what? They him right after. Oh, they burned him right after. But because of his learning and education, then they granted him the, the the mercy of strangling him first, and then they burned him and spread his ashes so he couldn't be resurrected. That's that's the whole notion of burning and spreading the ashes is. You can't be resurrected now because we've scattered you to the river and everywhere, so you're just dead and damned. Um, Go. Well,
2: what really disillusioned me, too, growing up is that I, you know, thought the priests were, they were, they were, I don't like to talk into this thing. I mean, they were, they were that, you know, all that. But then I find out that one of them smoked and drank and gambled and, and it just blew me away. And then now I've known two or three that have left um, the church, and they're just normal people.
0: Well, because like, I didn't, I, seriously. Better not get to know me then. Um, what? Better not get to know me then. Because I'll disappoint you <laughs> too. Um, no, but, no but, that's, but that's hopefully, and I've said this a number of times, and I, I will say this again, I, I am no qualitatively different than anyone else in this room. I'm not called to a different priesthood. I, I'm another Christian. Uh, that what I'm, I have no inherent authority um, that you guys don't have with, with God's word. And I'm under the same authority. One of the reasons I think this Q&A we do now is so important is, is it, it, hopefully, one of the things it does is holds me to account to what I say, that none of you should take what I say or Daniel says or the elders say unless we show you why we say it from God's word. And if what we say is not according to God's word, you know, kindly, respectfully, point it out. Um, and and you, some of you, God bless you, have done that from time to time. And that means all of us are accountable. And you can, you can. I've seen churches. I mean, when I was at Grace Community Church, not MacArthur doesn't generate this, but it's in it's. We're hardwired. Moses, you go deal with God for me. That's difficult. That's scary. That's hard. Can you just? Just come back and tell me what to do. And so there are people at Grace Community Church, and th- there are plenty of people who are listening to MacArthur, judging his arguments, finding him to be faithful in his reasoning. But I definitely knew people that were like, hey, I don't need to know why MacArthur says it, and that's the way it is. You just made him the pope, <laughs> right? I mean, it, and so all of us, this was, this was last year's message, are called to be priests. So all of us need to get priesting. He's made us a kingdom of priests, which means you and I have the right and the ability and the and the authorization to read this. Because Rome said, oh, you, this is confusing. You'll get confused and there'll be all these factions. And well, there's some truth to that. There's how many different Protestant denominations? A lot. So I mean, <laughs> what they were afraid would happen is what happened, um, which is that as much as Many of God's people read the Word faithfully and, and largely agree. I and mean, one of the things I'm so encouraged about by going to T4G is just how much on the same page thousands of evangelical pastors and I are. Yeah, you got some, you got some wingnuts out there. And even in the Reformation, I'm, I'm listening right now. It makes for some interesting bedtime reading. Um, to listening to a biographer on Luther, and even in Luther's day, um, Munster and the Munster Kingdom was crazy. And there are some people who absolutely took the freedom of, I don't need no pope to tell me anything who did crazy things with this, even right out of the gate, um, and, uh, and so that, but we, we all need to study this, and we all need to be held accountable to this, and only in that way do we get kept in check. As, as Greg was saying, we need to constantly be holding what we're doing up to God's word. We need to constantly be open to someone coming and saying, here's what you do, but here's what is written, what gives and as long as we keep that stance, we are, we're going to be safeguarded. The second we start saying, hey, we've always done it this way, so don't question it, we're in trouble. Uh, um, Mike.
3: Always reforming. I just wanted to... I had a marriage, 19-year marriage, and then I got divorced for 10 years, and then I got remarried. And both my wives, my ex and my wife now, were raised... Catholic and I mean Catholic schools all the way through and when I married him they were still Catholics and they you know I told him I'm a Christian I, and um, what I did is I asked them to read the Bible because they had never read the Bible because like you said they don't have it in the church and as soon as they read the Bible they both became Christians and they both renounced the Catholic faith one did it one was angry and the other one cried for two hours because all of a sudden she realized she wasn't a Catholic anymore. I mean, it was that hard to pull that out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, one took it upon herself, my my ex-wife, to pretty much try to teach other Catholics that you're, you know. Um, and She had some pretty good stories. I mean, like, you know, Mary died a virgin, and she told, it was funny because she worked at the hospital, and she was had an argument with this girl that, no, Mary didn't die a virgin. She had other children. Um, and she was, no, 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 no. And she finally found the, the priest in the hospital, and she cornered him. And he told her the truth. <laughs> she was very angry that she'd been lied to for 25 years. Hmm. But it's, just, it's funny that both times it was just, read the Bible. The Word of God pretty much set him free. So
0: That, that, is, that is the truth. There's this great quote by Luther that I didn't include in the sermon in the first message I'm going to bungle it because so I don't have it in front of me. But it was about the power of the word. The word did everything. I did nothing. We sat around in Wittenberg drinking good Wittenberg beer and talking theology, and the word of God demolished the papacy more than any army or king could. Or some, I'm bungling it, but that was basically Luther's statement. was It was unleashing the Bible and the word of God that did it. <laughs> right, right. Um. No, I mean it's things like purgatory. So it's a big piece of the Roman system. You find it. <laughs> it's just not there. Um, it's just absolutely absent. Um, oh, and I'll close with this, Donna, and we'll, we'll be our time's up. The other problem gets back to the translation of how errors crept in. Is since the fourth century, Rome had used exclusively the Latin Vulgate, translated by one guy, Jerome, of, who was a decent guy. Jerome was a good guy, but. One guy translated the Bible into Latin, and he made some errors. And one of the things he did that really buttressed the Roman understanding was he consistently repented, uh, re- repented. translated repentance as penance. So in the Latin, you get due penance all over the place, which, of course, backs up their reading. That was um, one of the chief things, in fact. If you read the 95 Theses, that's what Luther goes after right out of the gate that our Lord didn't call on penance, he called on repentance. Um, Very different concepts, but in Latin, that's what it's given. So they only have one translation, only they are allowed to read it, their interpretations of it are firm, and now you've got a feedback loop that can't be checked. I mean, what what was so maddening to Luther at, um, say, at Worms, because what he wanted to do was have a dispute, have a debate, and he had a couple debates. He had one with Eck um, at Leipzig, and he demolished them, and so he shows up to Worms because the Pope wants um, Frederick of Saxony to give Luther over so they can burn him at the stake. And the, um, the, the Holy Roman Emperor is on the Pope's side. So Frederick gets the Holy Roman Emperor to agree that Luther will be tried in Germany. So they try him at Worms, and Luther wants to have another debate. And, and Rome had had enough. We're not debating anything. We've, we've decided what is true. We want to simply know whether you agree or not. We, we don't recognize, they're saying to him, you're right to question our interpretations. We're not going to have that discussion. I mean, this is what parents do to their kids. I don't need to explain myself to you. Will you obey or not? Well, that's the conversation Rome had with Luther, and that's where he made that statement, here I stand, I can do no other. They were done debating. They were completely done. This wasn't a dispute, because our traditions are as authoritative as Scripture. That's a pretty convenient feedback loop you've got there that's going to constantly reaffirm you in what you're doing because you can legitimately say, this is the way we've always done it. And if that's the case, that has just as much authority as Scripture. And there's no reforming out of that. There's no challenging that. You've got a a system that self-perpetuates that can't be checked or called into question because this is what we've always done. Tradition, you know. And, And so only by the formal principle of the Reformation, Scripture alone, are all men made equal. All of us are held accountable. All of us are open to this book. And all of us can read this book. I don't have some special reading insight that you don't have. So it, this way, we're all priests before God, and this way, we're all equal. They, they okay, Rome... Rome from, from There's a bunch of books, intertestamental books, that were written, um, history books mostly, like First and Second Maccabees, um, written during the 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, which from as early as the, as the early church were copied, they were viewed as valuable and useful. I mean, history books are useful, and Maccabees has got some pretty good history. There's no evidence that it was ever treated as Scripture. If you go through the early church writings, I've got them, they don't quote them like the Scriptures, they don't, they don't refer to them like the Scriptures, but they were regularly, without printing presses, copied and bundled together. It wasn't until after the Reformation that Rome canonized the Vulgate. In other words, it wasn't till Luther said, you can't prove from Scripture purgatory, that they said, okay, then we'll make Scripture the books that prove purgatory. So, so it's, it's awfully convenient. Now, again, that's to be fair. Rome had been treating them for a while like scripture, because remember, tradition starts then you canonize it. But it wasn't canon law that the apocrypha was scripture until Trent. So, so now they can try to defend it from scripture, but they, it wasn't clear in any way, uniformly whether the the the. Uh, apocrypha with scripture. Anyway, we've gone over time. We can pick this up next week. God bless. Thank you all.